Constructing Modern Knowledge podcast. This episode, recorded June 30th, 2020, features an Ask Me Anything conversation with Conrad Wolfram. Here's your host, Dr. Gary Steger. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Gary Steger. Welcome to the sixth Ask Me Anything session. Um, we've got a really great learning opportunity for you this morning with a very special guest, my friend Conrad Wolfram. Conrad's a physicist, mathematician, technologist, and a strategic director and European co-founder, CEO of Wolfram, the math company. That's the folks behind Mathematica, Wolfram Language, and Wolfram Alpha, which powers Siri and helps kids do their homework around the globe. And most recently, he's the author of The Math Fix, an education blueprint for the AI age. And he's going to be talking about this book and his work around computer-based mathematics and computational thinking. We're going to let Conrad present for a, a few minutes. And then we'll, I'll ask him a few follow-up questions, and then we'll open it up to everyone for, so join me in welcoming Conrad Wolfram. Thanks for coming, Conrad. We really appreciate it. Oh, I see. You get a Zoom clap as well. That's even better. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Gary. That's, it's nice to be here. What I thought I would do is talk a little bit about how I ended up writing this book, which will encompass, I hope, some of the sort of what, you know, behind, behind the, the theory and the practice of this as well. Um, so I guess one starting point here is I, I often say that, you know, my day job, in a sense, is computation for everyone, you know, trying to get the machinery as automated as possible so that everyone can use computation at the highest possible level. And, you know, it's worked very well over the last few decades by us and other people. You know, the world is dramatically more computational than it, than it was. And that's partly down to the machinery. Uh, except except in education. And in education, I've been sort of watching over these years. Um, actually, Wolfram just turned 32, uh, not the person here, but the company, um, at least the release of Mathematica a few days ago. Funny enough, on Alan Turing's birthday, 23rd of June. Um, but uh, I've sort of been watching how our tech and other people's uh, was used in this way in the real world, but not in education. And there's sort of a total divergence and an increasing divergence um, with respect to, to computation specifically and, and mathematics. And so hence my, what I could describe as my evening job, which is uh, the subject of, of the math fix of the book, uh, and um, which I sort of describe as optimizing everyone for computation through computational thinking. So on the one hand, my day job is optimizing the computer to help us be as automated as possible. and my uh, my, my evening job is apparently contradictory with that, which is making everyone step up to this new found automation we have and go further. And that's why I sort of describe as everyone for computation. And, you know, when I look back, I mean, how did I engage in this problem? I suppose it was about 15 years ago I really started to see this divergence. Um, and it was probably... We're talking 2009 when I was really kicked into action, and that was by the release of Wolfram Alpha. And what happened then was, was really that um, 
I, you know, people kept asking, is it cheating to use Wolfram Alpha for your maths education? Uh, and so I ended up doing a TEDx talk about this, which was entitled Stop Teaching Calculating, Start Learning Maths. And we started computerbasedmath.org to start to think about this. And I laid out the divergence, you know, that it didn't seem to make sense. If you've got the computers available to use in real life, why wouldn't you use them in education? And it's not cheating if you're using the machinery you'd normally use. Uh, so we then started looking around for good curricula. And, you know, people must have built curricula that assumed computers exist in mathematics, one would think. Uh, and there was more and more evidence as we looked around that really this hadn't happened. And, uh, you know, and we also were trying to figure out, could we do this in a purely constructionist way, like, like Gary and other people who are here, Brian, I see, uh, and, um, um, uh, you know, could, and, and Cynthia, is that possible for the whole structure of mathematics? And we concluded it probably wasn't. And we can discuss and argue about that later. And so we thought we had to actually put some structure in there and figure out what we would do if we assume computers. I also kept hearing war stories that kind of drove me forward more and more, you know, from, from customers of our software, from working customers, from employer, from, from other employers, from universities, from parents, and actually eventually from my daughter as well, um, who was complaining bitterly about why. You know, she had to do the math she had to do. Um, and it was, it was lots of really frustrating stuff. You know, stuff about people who got stuck doing long division by hand. Uh, so they were written off as computational thinkers for studying biology. And I was just looking at it thinking, I don't really understand the connection between whether you can, you know, hand process long division and whether you can study biology and think about it in a computational way. Um, and it seemed that math from age 10 wasn't really being used outside math. I mean, as in, you think about people teaching English, uh, you kind of end up learning more and more about, uh, you know, you, you use more and more of the English you learn higher and higher up the educational uh, uh, sort of age range. If you think about maths, most people don't use maths they learn after about sort of age 10 unless they happen to go in a very technical subject. So that, that itself, given that math is supposed to be the subject for everyone, that seems to me to spell some, some problems. And so there was still a very little connection between compulsory maths for 10 plus years of people's lives after education. So when we started talking to countries and going to conferences, we put conferences on in, in um, London and New York. Um, I just couldn't believe no one had assumed computers do the calculating and changed, you know, and changed everything in education as, as it had in the real world. So I started to realize this was a big deal. And the whole world was running in the wrong direction on this very, very central subject that everybody was forced to take uh, with a future that was more and more computational, more and more sort of AI. And yet we seem to be running in the wrong direction. And just to be very clear, um, you know, what, what I typically mean by this, let me just try and share the, the four steps that I think mathematics really, really is. Um, let me uh, see if I can operate this properly. Um, so if I've done this right. Uh, actually, I'm not allowed to share screen. Can I be allowed oh. to share screen? Yeah, let me fix you up. Great. See if I don't want everybody sharing screen, but I, I could do it. See if that works. 
Uh, um, that is, uh, let's see if I got this right. Uh, yes, I think that's going to work. Can you see that? Yes. So we started thinking, what, what is it? What is the maths process? What is it you're really learning when you learn maths? And in the end, we think about these four steps that I talk about a lot in the book. It's a process. You know, you're defining questions, uh, but you think of you know, problems you want to solve. You're abstracting those to some computable form. And you know, traditionally into mathematical notation, in modern world into code, program, you know, computer code. And then you're trying to take that question in that form and turn it into the answer in that abstract form. And then you're trying to sort of interpret the results and take it back to the, the step one to answer the question you originally asked. And, and you might ask, why do you bother to abstract it? Why not just talk about it in English? And the answer is because it's so powerful for getting answers. And you can take so many things from different, apparently totally discrepant types of, uh, types of problems, but actually they turn out to be uh, amenable to various tool sets that are common to all of them. Uh, that have been developed over hundreds of years. And now we have fantastic machinery actually to take the abstract question and turn it into the abstract answer in the form of computers. And the big problem we kept seeing was, you know, in education, we're spending all of our time doing step three by hand. And that's a big problem. What we ought to be doing is much more of step three on the computer and much more of students doing steps one, two, and four, which is what they crisply need to know how to do, the kind of computational thinking steps that have not been mechanized at this point for the most part. And so that's kind of the centerpiece of what we were, um, uh, what, what we were thinking about. And, um, and then you start to think, you know, is this such a big problem? Uh, is it, you know, and you think, well, actually, yes. I mean, around the world, there's huge upset being caused by this. There's huge disenfranchisement. Um, and it's not really fair to force everyone in the world through this subject if this subject isn't really um, what they kind of need to be learning. Um, so slowly we started to get some projects with innovative companies, um, particularly Estonia. The, the minister at the time, Jakob Iksu, sort of stuck his neck out first and was prepared to actually do something. And so then we started building out what we actually wanted to deliver. I mean, it's kind of difficult. You know, you, you've got this project. It's like, what do you actually produce for a bunch of teachers in a country We've never taught the subject before. Um, so we thought we'd inject our new content structures of today's curriculum, but that didn't work. Couldn't use today's formulation, had to re-engineer that too. So we needed a new kind of conceptualization of how curricula might be thought about to go with the new content. Needed to build actual materials. You know, we don't just want to produce a specification because, because how is somebody who's a math teacher, you know, who's never studied the subject supposed to know what to do with that? Um, so we made good progress, but then, you know, it was pretty obvious how stuck the educational ecosystem really is. It's kind of like every time you want to try and make a change, particularly in subjects, there's sort of endless roadblocks in the way. And maths, the, the really bizarre thing about maths is it's so central, it's so important that you can't touch it. I always think it's kind of a, a weird <laughs> paradox. Um, it's so ingrained in people's psychology. You know, it's, uh, it's sort of so ingrained in judging students through assessments. Um, it's so central, but it becomes so disconnected. And, and there's an interesting comparison here, which is Latin and classics in the UK and Europe. So you may not know this, but in the 1950s, if you wanted to go study 
let's say, a science subject at Oxford University, you had to have a Latin A-level, A-level being what you take before, when you were around 18, before you go to college. And if you didn't have Latin, you couldn't study science. This seems pretty bizarre in the modern world. It's like, why is learning, you know, mensa, mensa, mensam, or declining down a noun, like mensa, which means a table. Uh, I did do some Latin. Why does that have much to do with whether you're a good biology, you know, biology major? Um, well, the answer is it doesn't. It was just used as a sort of measure of acumen. And so I'm sad to say I see some parallels with today's maths in schools. And um, it sounds crazy, you know, that it was done that way, but I think we will see in the future that some of the maths we've been doing sounds similarly as crazy. But of course, I do believe there is a right math subject that is highly relevant, that absolutely does need to be there. So after all of this, and after we'd started thinking and talking about this a lot, um, it's um, amazing things started to happen. People said, much of what you're saying, by the way, isn't just about maths. There are major other problems for the AI age uh, across the rest of education. Um, and, you know, disconnected subjects, things that are not, you know, curricular that are set in an odd way, ecosystem stuff, etc. So it's sort of clear that a wholesale change was required um, around maths from the vision to, to build out, to process and the politics of that change. And just talking to the sort of educational establishment wasn't going to cut it in most countries. It wasn't like going to make that change. You can't make change without the public support in most places. There's too much political capital needed, too little knowledge of the real uses of maths, too many moving parts. So um, some of the public, at least, need to understand the problem and see a solution. And that's not very easy. Um, took me sort of 15 years to try and understand what it was that, uh, that we needed here. And uniquely, we're sort of right in the middle of this one with millions of math customers from every field in all seven continents. And also, I like to point out, we usually have customers in space as well, as well as the seven <laughs> continents. Um, so we have a fairly good coverage, I would say, of the typical, uh, typical computational thinkers you find in the universe. Um, um, you know, we're also employers of math people and users ourselves. So it's kind of like we are very much in the center of this, as Gary said at the beginning. We, we, we're kind of the math company in that sense. Um, so I felt strongly if it wasn't us kind of making the change, it, you know, it likely wouldn't be anybody else. It's like if we can't see this and map it out, it's kind of even harder for anybody else. And so that's sort of how this book project started. And so, you know, it ended up, I'd given many, many talks. Um, uh, many people invite me, in fact, including Gary. I was, it was great to be in Los Angeles a, a, few, a few years ago. And, you know, but in the end, writing blogs, giving 20-minute talks, or even an hour's talk, didn't kind of cover the whole area. So five years after people suggested I should write a book about all this, I actually started. And it's been a difficult thing, because what I'm trying to do is put together a book that's not just for the establishment, but it's for everyone who is interested and is, you know, reasonably, you know, sort of of a level to engage in this, to understand what's wrong and how we might put it right. And um, I thought it'd be rather easy. I thought it'd be like piece together all my blog posts and it'd be wonderful and then I could smooth it out a bit and it, that would work. But boy, was I wrong about that. Um, I realized actually two things about it, several things. Firstly, the order was wrong. Secondly, the framing was wrong. And thirdly, worse, there were actually quite a few pieces missing. 
pieces of the argument that we haven't actually figured out. And so it's been very useful in trying to do that. Um, and, you know, worse was to come. My, my, I gave some early drafts to my wife, Stella, and she thought they were stiff and not a book she would read, even though she reads, like, popular science books and things. So, so you can imagine that wasn't a great evening. But uh, the, um, that did make me change and uh, um, made, you know, I realized I had a kind of a personal narrative in this, and I didn't want just a dry math book. Um, I wanted to express the argumentation as well, and my failures and my daughter's challenges and so forth. So I looked at, the funny thing here is I looked at genres of books this could fit into, and I realized it doesn't really fit into any. So there are popular science books, but there isn't, this isn't science, it's math. They're sort of education philosophy books, but mostly those are about the philosophy, not what you actually do to fix them. And it's, you know, it, this is sort of action you know, as well as critique. Um, and, you know, then there's how you do today's maths better or self-help books. But again, this isn't really exactly either of those. So anyway, I've attempted to cut through all of those. Um, obviously, only you guys can, who, you know, can tell me whether I've succeeded at all. Um, and I've tried to make this something for everyone who cares, you know, parents, teachers, students, um, and people who need to care, like employers, policymakers, politicians, etc. Um, but, you know, it's, it's challenging, and there are bits that are quite hard going, because I want to make sure there's enough in it that people who are sort of policymakers, traditional educational policymakers, can't tell me, you really didn't think about any of this stuff, because I actually think we've thought about it in more detail than some of them have. Um, on the other hand, I don't want it so stiff that it's sort of impossible to get through. So hopefully we've managed to combine some of it. Anyway, so that's, um, in a sense, that's been the theory. Um, I thought I would just flick up very quickly. Um, just try and uh, this is uh, let's see if I can get this organised. Um, this is uh, this is the practice, uh, and um, this is uh, this is basically the practice. And uh, really, there are three sections, and you know the problem, the fix, and how you actually think about achieving change. Uh, of this, and I, you know, I'd be really interested in how people perceive these in different places. So the problem is really the argument about what we do. The fix is slightly heavier in many ways. It's really trying to map out what we think is a, an appropriate way to think about how you fix the problem. And then change is a lot about my, you know, I rather enjoyed chapter ten, the, the objections, objections people have made to what I'm saying, and other ways to think about the roadmap that one might follow um, for changing. And um, uh, one thing I should point out, actually, is people ask me why I called it the maths fix. Uh, it's really this. I, sort of maths has become an unhealthy fixation for assessment and addictive uh, fix for policymakers to push and therefore hard to fundamentally fix. And those were all the meanings I intended, as well as spelling out the solution to fix in detail. Um, and then there was obviously the problem of being in the UK and the US, hence the, uh, the optional S at the end of the word, depending on which side of the Atlantic you are. So anyway, that's a very quick rendition of what, uh, what I've tried to do. And um, I guess it's over to everybody else. Thanks very much. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Thanks, Conrad. Um, the, the first question is, well, the, the point I want to make that I think is important about the book is you not only identify the problem, um, you offer some some examples of what of what might be done instead, and and you don't just recognize that it's a matter of 
of shifting pedagogy or a new tr teaching trick. That most of the discussions about improving maths are about getting a different, getting a better result on the same, as Papert used to call it, the same diet of mathematics for children and recognizing that there needs to be a new diet of mathematics for kids. So I, I'd appreciate it, and I'm sure the audience would as well, if you could give us an example or two of, of something different, you know, a, a sort of what kids do now or what they're expected to do, what, what they might be doing or should be doing, and, and how, that, how computation plays into that and how tech, you know, computing, coding, whatever. Looks. So, so let me, I mean, there are a couple of different ways I can maybe go at that. So one is they need to start from real problems they might actually care about. And what I mean by that is, you know, traditional maths classes right now in school mostly start from some abstract thing that, you know, unless they happen to be very interested in, in manipulating algebra, they don't care about because they have nothing to do with their lives at that point. So I believe that what one of the things we do thinking about very differently, start with fuzzy questions or problems or things that might be engaging and have, you know, use the mathematics as a tool to help get better answers to those questions. And in a sense, use computing and coding to be able to help, you know, use, kind of carry out the mathematics in a sense to get those better answers. And so, you know, we've got all sorts of um, problem sets, you know, for example, uh, you know, Am I Normal was an early uh, module we built. And the idea of that was enough structure to help the students to sort of go through and try and get some of the structure mathematics. Because what we really want, so here's another change. If you look at today's math curricula, we teach a pitiful number of tool sets in mathematics. You learn something about quadratic equations. You learn a bit about matrices. Right? You don't learn about machine learning. You don't learn squat about modern data science. I mean, you might learn probability and statistics, but that's not modern data science. It's often even the other way around. You know, there are a vast number of very sophisticated tool sets out there that you could use as a 10-year-old. And yet you don't really learn about those. What you learn about is in great detail how to plod through a very small number of tool sets. And most of the tool sets you're learning how to plod through you can't actually use for real problems in the world that you would actually think about seeing outside. So why is this? Because, I mean, and mathematicians often hate me saying this, just to, just to preempt this, but the reality is maths was not that useful for many aspects of the world, of doing things in the world, until we had mechanized computing. It was good for bits of physics. It was good for accountancy. It was useless for biology, mostly, because it's too complex, too many data points. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So the reason we're also concerned about people knowing so much mathematics in the world is because the world out there uses it because it's able to use it because mechanized computing has has allowed it to be used. And yet that context setting is what we cut out of most of education. So if you're in education doing math right now without a computer, you can't do most things in context. And that's a major change, sort of. I want to see and. Finally, in terms of how coding might fit in, you know, how I see those two plugging together. The step two I show, the abstraction, to me is, a, is, is the most sort of definitive, you know, connection between the two. You know, when you abstract in the modern world, you abstract to code. You don't abstract to traditional mathematical notation. Code is a much, you know, more general way of writing down what you know technically. And, of course, you can then get a computer executed, and that's what you want to have happen. So that's sort of one very, very definite link. 
Well, yeah, I, I remember from your TED talk, one of the more stunning statements you made was that you calculated we spend 106 human lifetimes, human lifetimes per day teaching hand calculation to children. Why is that a problem? And my answer to that is, it's, it's, you know, if they really enjoyed it, that would be wonderful. But most of them don't. They don't give a shit, frankly, and nor should they if they don't like it. And the problem is that, you know, so I, I have this big bifurcation, I see, between, you know, compulsory subjects and non-compulsory subjects. So to my mind, if you want to go and study Latin, to pick my example, my daughter actually loves Latin. She really likes studying Latin. That's wonderful. That's really good. She's found something she enjoys, and she should go and study it. But if you're going to force the world's population to learn mathematics for 10 years of their life plus, they don't enjoy it, and you can't really associate it with why they needed it afterwards. And, you know, they get tested on it and told that they are no good as human beings in various ways because they couldn't do their long division. That's a real problem. That's kind of very negative in the world. And there's another thing that's really, really negative, which is many decisions in public dis discourse, as, as we've had at the moment with COVID, many decisions are being taken on the basis of computational thinking, apparently. And so we need a level of computational literacy in our societies. Because if we don't have that, we have a small number of people who are saying, kind of telling us what to believe, with most of the population not really understanding. And this is very like what happened several hundred years ago before we had mass literacy. We had a few aristocrats and high priests telling everyone kind of what to believe. And some of them were well-intentioned, some of them weren't. But we had a populace who really couldn't check it for themselves. They couldn't, they couldn't find the knowledge themselves because they couldn't read and write. And that's very dangerous because, you know, you can, you can mislead people very easily if they can't check things themselves. I believe we're in a new unenlightened era of that sort, or it's emerging. And, you know, we have experts standing up and saying, you know, we're going to have this number of uh, cases of whatever. And we have other people saying, don't believe any expert. And that's what you get when you have a populace who, don't, who are not sort of literate in the public, in, in the way in which you're making decisions. So I see a critical problem, as well as upsetting a large number of people and disenfranchising them. It, it, sorry, it's, it's to disenfranchise them. I see us, in a sense, taking a large fraction of the population, uninvolving them in modern decision-making, and then wondering why they feel disenfranchised. And so I feel that's a very major issue we need to solve. And in a sense, mathematics, as the central core computational subject at the moment, ought to be helping with that, but it really isn't. And that's what we need to change it to, to help with. I love the, the story you also told in the TED Talk about your daughter going through the period where she was making paper laptops. And I even have a picture in my book, actually, of the paper laptop somewhere. Um, the, uh, I, found, I found a photo of it, in fact. Um, yeah, I mean, this was a comparison of kind of the idea that, that you, you don't need to teach things in the order in which they were discovered or, you know, or, or, in, or invented. So the particular reference was that she was, I don't know how old, maybe five years old, and, um, uh, you know, I, she was making these paper laptops. In fact, if I, I'm just going to quickly look in my, as, as we're talking, um, the, um, she, she was, um, uh, 
and and so I said to her, oh, here we go. Let me just, uh, I, will, I will flick up the appropriate page. Let me see if I can do that quickly. Um, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm being a bit uh, sluggish on, I'm normally into Zoom, but uh, it does have funny controls for some things. But anyway, so here's the, here is the paper, the very paper laptop we talked about. Um, she made, and as I describe here, uh, I said to her, you know, it's funny, when I was your age, I didn't make paper laptops. Why was that? Why do you think that was? And she thought very carefully for maybe um, a second or two. And then she said, no paper. So I, was always, I always enjoyed that um, misunderstanding of the history of laptops and paper. But of course, to her, it didn't matter. You know, laptops were there, they were already invented. And, um, uh, you know, it's it sort of which order those got invented in didn't seem like the critical thing. By the way, just to point out on this laptop, I do rather like the fact that she put early on, she was into marketing. She put the Mathematica logo on the screen. She thought that was, whoops, I'm sorry. Um, she, she, thought, uh, she thought that was very important. And the other thing I thought was interesting as a specificity thing is she thought it was very important to write on the space bar that that's what it did. Um, in case you didn't know that the space bar did spaces. So I, I always rather enjoyed those two, uh, those two characteristics of her particular rendition of a laptop. Well, it's, it's extraordinary. This, is, this week is the 30th anniversary of me working in the first schools where every kid had a laptop. And ah. the, fact, the fact that th three decades later, we're still arguing over whether kids should have access to computers makes my head explode. And, it, you know, and we, we had a crisis when schools shut down and everything had to go online. There were a whole lot of kids in the richest country in history who couldn't participate. They, they not only couldn't engage intellectually in the sorts of work that, they, that you want us to aspire to, but they, they couldn't do anything. Uh, and for a whole range of reasons, right? I mean, A, you know, equipment wasn't set up. B, people hadn't really adjusted to this the availability of it. And then all the other reasons about what you might actually learn and how. Right, right. It just didn't exist. I mean, it simply didn't exist, let alone all the sort of more sophisticated reasons. All right, why don't we... Um, I'm going to try to unmute everyone. If you're eating lunch or if you have a dog in the background, mute yourself. Um, but if you've got a question for Conrad, speak I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't mind a question for the canine, from the canine audience, too. Yeah, it's a, yeah, well, be careful what you wish for. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm unmuting everyone. Um, if you've got a question, speak up. I, I, I'm Ed Romer. I, I work in some uh, public schools on Cape Cod in Massachusetts and around the Massachusetts area, and I've been connecting over the world through CBT Labs, the World Education Lab, for about four years. Uh, and I came into this because I, I, I couldn't believe what I was experiencing through the eyes of my children growing up, particularly with math. Um, I'm very unconventional. I don't have a lot of formal schooling, but I consider myself educated. Um, and I am struggling with how to bring this type of material. I brought your TED Talk to a, a principal who's now superintendent, you know, eight, ten years ago, but absolutely nothing has changed. Um, and I believe it's because of the way we assess the teachers in the school. Yeah. And I think that we're at a point now with this pandemic here that I think to take, I think it was Marvin Minsky that talked about about 15, 20 years ago, 
that the institutions are failing to teach children better ways of thinking, therefore resulting in a global pandemic of adults who are ill-prepared for the complexities. That is a great way to put it. So I think we're at that point. But I'm just curious about is one of the solutions. I have your book. I'm reading it with some other folks uh, locally trying to get a conversation going. But how do we get at the part of the assessment or, or, or do, you know, because I think we're, we're, everybody's working on this problem, but without changing the way teachers are assessed, we won't change yeah. the way they teach. Look, I, I, it's, it's a great question, and I, I certainly don't have all the answers. I mean, I suppose I feel like one wants to work from two or three ends and see where one kind of meets. <clears throat> so the sort of top-down end, in a way, it seems to me is we've got to start a political conversation everywhere we can as a group that is sort of engaged. And you'll see at the end of my book, I started this kind of um, MFC to the five, the... Um, uh, you know, the the uh, uh, campaign for core curriculum uh, change. And, you know, the more people who can sort of agree with the five points we've written down in that, I think that's a sort of tethering point. The, the problem we've got, one of the problems we've got is that, at that level that, that people who want to keep stuff all the same are mostly fairly relatively united. And folks who want to change stuff are relatively ununited. And that's for a number of reasons, partly because it's complicated, Secondly, because they haven't had much of a clear view of exactly what changes. There's a third problem, which is a lot of people, you know, with the best intentions, have tried to do very incremental change because they say, well, you know, what are we going to do next semester? And the trouble with that is it kind of waters down what the point was. And then the traditionalists say, well, uh, you know, this incremental change or that incremental change doesn't seem very sensible. So let's just go back to what we're doing to start so I suppose at the top level down, I feel like we need to have a campaign, a political campaign, which says there are, you know, this number of things we, we think are important to change. And, and I've written down five points in this, in this Maastricht campaign. Um, and uh, let's all get as big a body of people to, uh, to agree with those as possible. And then we've got, at least got a clear voice as to those sort of, categories of things that need to change and that that may be a sort of rallying call to, to a whole range of people. So that's, and obviously I hope the book will help with that somewhat. So that's top down. Now, you know, in terms of sort of other things one can do, I think, uh, you know, at one level, I put at the end of the book in an appendix some things that teachers and students and things can immediately do, uh, just practically. So I'm going to go right from the other end for a moment. So one thing is I, we made a poster of, of our math process, which is a sort of a, you can download it off, off our site. And the point here is to make sure everyone is sort of accustomed to the, this, in a sense, this process of, of thinking these four steps. And I think it's a very helpful thing to sort of hang up on the wall and to point to as you're teaching, because I think it really reinforces that calculating is only one of those steps and that there are many other very important steps that we need to take, and that even on traditional curricular problems, I think that can really help students to figure out where they're at in the problem. Um, you know, another thing I think is whenever there's an opportunity to do extracurricular type, type work, you know, we've in fact just put up four sample modules of our computer-based math modules. You can find them in Wolfram U, our, our university thing. They're sort of relatively early stage, so they're, they're in beta, but I would love comments if you get a chance to try them. Um, and these are an attempt, you know, to go around the curriculum and to try and help um, in, you know, in a sense, just 
as the way there are coding clubs, there can also be kind of computational thinking clubs and ways to engage students in things they might be interested in, whether that's biology, as I had earlier as an example, or linguistics or whatever. Um, so I think that's another possible way. In terms of the discourse in school, it's very tough, as you say, because everything's tied to these assessments. You know, at some point, what we obviously want is we want to shift the assessments so that they are, uh, um, you know, in a sense, we're, we're using different content. And I, one really positive thing, by the way, I note that California has, uh, you know, the, the, um, if I've got this correct, the California system has said that they don't want to use SATs anymore for admission to university, if I've got that correct. Um, and I think this realization that these very standardized tests are just not giving us the answers we need is a beginning to sort of ending that, that monopoly. So another thing we're thinking and trying to do is, is building possible other certifications to help people. So there's some reason they might engage with something different. So, so I'm sorry, I don't feel that's a great answer because I don't have a great answer to the whole ecosystem change that's needed. But those are a few pointers anyway that, that maybe have some help. I'm, I'm always amazed that the, the greatest, the only time where parents get up in arms about math education and they show up at a school board meeting with pitchforks and torches at the ready um, is when they went to the shop and they bought something and they received the wrong change. And, and that's always a reason for taking, you know, algebra three or something or forcing more kids to, to, to do some meaningless hand calculation. When in fact, not only isn't the, the cure for the, the problem they diagnosed, um, doing doing you know more mental ma mathematics more but and more reasoning and thinking more analytical work um but no one makes change anymore either well Maybe. i mean i think that the, the the point that i think was edward who brought up about the assessments as i go into this in great detail in the book it actually goes all the way down it's even worse than it used to be because we're worried we, we quantitatively worry we there's so much pressure on competition everywhere that the quantitative exact assessment becomes more judgmental on how people have done. It, it was more, you know, if you look 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was more qualitative, or there was more room for qualitative questions because, you know, you wouldn't get sued if you produced the wrong marks on an example in the way that you might now. You know, it, there was more judgment allowed in some of what was done. So that allowed a certain amount of flexibility. But it's even worse than that because we have things like PISA, the, the you know, the worldwide organization that judges countries against each other. So maybe this is less prevalent in the US actually, but if you're a small country, you know, in Europe, and you want to change your math curriculum, uh, you know, you've then got to face the wrath of seeing yourself potentially go down in the PISA schools, because PISA have kind of locked all the countries together to the same subject to some extent. And I actually compare this in the book a little bit to how Lloyd's of London, the insurance market, managed to insure around in a circle by, by you know, insuring with each other because they thought that was mitigating their risk when actually it was increasing their risk because people weren't independent to take different risks out. So I feel like the education ecosystem market is a little bit like that in, in today, the subjects. Well, and PISA is deeply immoral because in order for your country to win, your, your daughter has to do better in long division than my daughter. That's right, right. because it's tethered to a particular view of what the subject of mathematics actually is. Well, and this notion that, that education is a zero-sum game. Well, that's that too, yes. Can I interject a little on that one question? Yeah, Brian, welcome. Hi, Brian. Artemis. Hi. 
Um, no, it, it's funny though. So this is a small one. He says cousin is Tim, and um, it turned out that the right number of years after would be relevant. Quebec, but logo writer in all of the schools. Um, Canada, Quebec did near the top of the charts on that. And the story of finished lessons is another kind of dramatic educational change that lead to doing better on the standardized tests. Yeah, I mean, people have often asked me if we do computer-based maths and what you're proposing, will we do better on the standardized math, you know, standardized math tests? And I said, quite possibly, yes. I just can't tell you exactly. But but I wonder also if there's a problem with how much stuff there now is in, in the curriculum. How many, you know, so it's kind of like it, it allows you to do better a bit if you, if you have any space to do anything that wasn't in the curriculum. But over time in most countries, the curriculum's got so full that actually there isn't much space to do stuff that wasn't for, a, you know, for some assessment in many countries. Well, funny, though, because when in thinking about both the Finnish and the Quebec case, I don't really think that the change made the difference. It was the fact that the system was willing to embrace change. Right. Fair enough. Um, I mean, one of the things I cite actually in the book is an interesting case about change in the UK. Probably a bit different in the US, right? But uh, the um, when I was in the UK, I used to have to study divinity, which meant basically learning bits out of the Bible and memorizing. By the time my daughter was studying what was now, then called, now called religious studies, it was a much sort of more edgy subject. It's about ethics, it's about the comparison between different religions, it's about different you know, philosophies of societies and so forth. You know, should you have the death penalty, shouldn't you, etc., etc. And she really enjoyed it. And a lot of teachers were sucked in who had nothing to do with um, religion per se, they were just interested in theology and you know ethics and philosophy. And or it became a rather interesting subject. Uh, what's that? Or just arguing. Or just arguing. Yeah, or just arguing. I mean, many math teachers who you know sort of you know interesting math teachers got sucked in. I know I have a good friend who teaches in the UK who very supportive of CBM who who absolutely loves teaching religious studies. And in fact, it's sort of come full circle because the. Recently, the humanists in the UK have complained that it has religious in its title. It's kind of gone full circle in subject change. Now, the interesting thing is why that change has been allowed in the UK and hasn't, maths hasn't been allowed to change. I think it's quite interesting because it was in the UK view of life, it's a very side subject. And so it was allowed space to change in a way that maths is viewed as very central, very assessed. And so it hasn't been allowed to change. And that's kind of, uh, that's kind of one of the problems we've got with our, our, our ecosystem. Who else has another question for Conrad? Yes, I'd love to ask your, uh, your insight on something I'm curious about. So I do online teaching now um, on a YouTube channel. But I used to teach in a high school classroom. I would teach chemistry and biology to juniors. Uh, sophomores and juniors. And what I found was that sometime during their sophomore year, um, our science classes were quite quantitative. Sometime during that year, about half of my students would by themselves achieve some sort of ability to think abstractly. And before that, it was purely just plug and chug. Do I have the right answer? They couldn't see the generalization of the problem. And then some students never quite got there, you know, but yeah. I could see this abstraction emerge sometime during your sophomore year. And I'm wondering, 
do you see this generally being the case of like a kind of mental maturity where they can students yeah, can really achieve this or could it come earlier if this was more of a common way of teaching it's a great question about sort of how you make that jump and one sees it obviously i'm sure gary you know sees it a lot with coding and with with other ways where you need to make this jump to abstraction so i don't really have an answer for you but i do have the way I think it's chapter, I can't remember if I changed the chapter number six or seven in my book, where I felt strongly that one of the mistakes we're making at the moment is, in a sense, you know, the process by which you think, in quotes, is not tethered to directly to outcomes that we're looking at. I mean, if you look at outcomes from mathematics, I know better, but, but I'm sure science as well. It's very bizarre in most countries what happens is they list things like you know you need to be able to you know quote think about how you solve a quadratic equation right or you need to be able to you know do a matrix inversion or whatever it is right which may be thinking or may just be process but there's an or and sometimes at the top level they say you know we want critical thinking skills but you know what does that really mean <laughs> and there's sort of nothing in between and i suppose the way we thought about this is i think there are in a sense, helpers for making this job. But there are things I do every day that I've learned sort of over time, which help me learn how to think. Now, I can't really tell you whether I, whether if I'd been fed those processes, that would have helped me jump to being able to sort of self-initiate self in a sense. But I certainly think we ought to try. And I think that, so I think one of the things I've tried to lay out is some outcomes and processes by which you can help people actually think about things. You know, things that are common ways in which people who are used to um, used to thinking in science or mathematics actually approach problems. Because I don't really think that's what we're doing. So, so I, I suppose I can't really say whether it's kind of one of these questions where it, it's it's a bit like the question of whether an AI is actually thinking. It's kind of like the same sort of question you're asking. You know, when that is is making this jump something that's sort of somehow intrinsic that, that some people just don't have the right connections to be able to do that easily or that somehow we haven't taught them right and that they can make those connections and i think it's some combination but i certainly think we can try and you know there are things we can do that are much better than we're doing and so i suppose one of my points in the book particularly was i was trying to say if we're going to make a list of outcomes as to what we want from either an individual subject or in general across education Let's, for goodness sake, try and abstract out thinking sets of outcomes, not just abstract out certain techniques. And let's actually make progress with that. And so you'll see this list of 11-dimensional lists. Um, but there's another thing I would add to this whole thing, which is attitude and particularly confidence. So um, I mean, one of the big 11, uh, one of our 11 dimensions is confidence to tackle new problems. Because right, in, in, in a maths context, I mean, in the end, if you're just going to run the problems exactly that some people run, well, you may as well get a computer to run them. I don't really know how it helps you. So in the end, you're trying to do something new at some point. It may be slightly new or it may be majorly new. But, you know, it's a new application of the thing. So if you don't have confidence to step to that new application, it's kind of like what was it all for at some level. So I feel, like, and again, I think there are practical steps, by the way, both for teachers and for students to take in improving confidence. So for example, you know, learning how to read up about a new mathematical function you don't really understand. 
right? There are ways I do that, and everybody who's interested in, you know, but you don't learn it explicitly. You're sort of supposed to absorb how to do that. And some people manage it, some people don't. I think we can explicitly teach some of those things. So, so I, I hopefully that's some answer to, to what, what I think. It's a really, really interesting question. And I think it's particularly critical as we enter what I call the AI age, where we're sort of humans and, and computers are more sharing you know, intelligence, whatever you want to define that as, but, but something we would think of as quintessentially human. And so we've kind of got to be very clear what thinking skills we want to educate our humans for, or else they'll all be lost in some sort of process that the computer could do anyway, and we didn't really need the human for any, in any case. You know, but, but a lot of the, the rhetoric around computational thinking is, this, is another form of play acting. That's, that's been schoolified and has been removed of any kind of, of powerful ideas. You know, James Classen typed into the comments, our curriculum in British Columbia states the value of computational thinking in every grade, yet teachers only understand that in the context of the ability to follow an algorithm and get the correct answer. Then they assess this as computational thinking, yet it's just compliance and memorization. Yeah. You know, Brian Harvey has said computational thinking without, without programming is just math. And it, and it's it's school math, not real mathematics. There, well, I mean, I think there are lots of, and I talk about this a lot in the book. There are lots of intertwined issues that cause this. So one of them, again, is this confidence issue. If, if you're not sure what you're doing as a teacher and you don't want to get caught out, you tend to go back to what you know, and you also tend to go back to less open-ended issues because it's easy. You know, it's it's more scary to deal with things where you don't know quite which way it's all going to go. And so I think we need to help with that. Um, now, that's part of it. The other part is that then, you know, we get into quantify. I mean, I, I have this expression I use, not just for education, by the way, but, but in other walks of life, that quantification is assumed in importance in some walks of life beyond its ability to judge. And so what I mean by that is numbers have a huge power of marketing. And so when you have an assessment with a number, you know, it's it's kind of overwhelms everything that was apparently more quantitative or might have been a better way of actually judging what, what's going on. And I think this is true not only in education, but it's true in, you know, uh, various metrics people use to judge how hospitals are running or speed cameras or all these other things where it doesn't necessarily, the one number doesn't tell you the whole story of what you are trying to achieve. I remember a, just a political example, you know, lawn signs don't vote. Which, which, okay, yes. Like seeing 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 political signs on people's front lawns doesn't doesn't indicate who's going to win the election. Right. You know, I, I often think about the fact that even if we're, our goals were as modest as trying to do better on the existing curriculum, we would teach kids what you're talking about because much of the existing curriculum has no relevance, no use, no practicality outside of computing. And, um, and even worse, it's got that. We're losing a lot of kids. I mean, there's, a, there's an equity oh, issue that I think, no, but, but one of the specific equity issues, I think, around this is, is the, I mean, in my view, is the following, that, that, you know, if you come from a background with more confidence, sort of initially higher socioeconomic group, you tend to be able to sort of push through abstraction before it's connected to your life more easily. Not because you're any better at it, but just because you're, you're, you know, your, your background gives you kind of more confidence to do that. And so I think if you start off in this very abstract view, before you, you know, you, here's, a, here's a quadratic equation. Everybody should learn how to solve this. And if you're very lucky, three, in three lessons time, you might learn if it's applicable to anything. 
you particularly lose the folks who have less confidence up front of that. And so people who may be actually very good abstract thinkers don't end up even engaging enough to get to that point. See what I mean? Well, there's a big social justice component to this as well. I mean, are you familiar with the Algebra Project? You know, Bob, there's a gentleman here in the United States who's a, he, he's a, a civil rights legend, Bob Moses. He changed the world. He, he, you know, he opened up the South. He got the help pass the voting rights, you know, um, you know, the voting rights amendment and, and has found that algebra is the gateway to success in life and getting onto university and for teachers to like you and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he's dedicated his life to helping kids do that thing better because it's such an obvious, uh, an obvious cause and correlation to see that. Well, right. And in, in some case, in some sense, I think it's a new poll tax. It's, it's, it's saying, well, there's this terrible thing that everybody has to do. And so if you want to be, if you want to be successful in life and then, then you need to do this terrible thing like everyone else. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's like Latin. It's exactly what Latin was in the 1950s in, in Britain. It's exactly the same kind of thing. It's like, I mean, there's a nice story, you know, about Churchill and being dumped in the bottom sat, which is that um, one of the reasons Churchill said he was good at English grammar was because uh, he was thought to be so dumb at classics that he was put in the bottom set of classics at Harrow School, where instead of teaching them Greek, they taught them English grammar, because they were thought to be so dumb they couldn't learn Greek. So, of course, he pointed out this was very, very useful later in life, right, because he really knew about how to construct an English sentence in a way that none of his, uh, none of his contemporaries did. That's great. My friend Brian Sanders has a question before he has to run out, so I'll let Brian ask the question. Hi, it's great to meet you. Um, question for you. I'm wondering if you could comment on what I see as sort of a lot of confusion about, you know, getting the right answer uh, versus showing your work. And, you know, if you've got the right answer, but you didn't show your work or you show your work and it, you know, wherever you end up um, demonstrating your process as a student, either by showing your work or getting the right answer, there seems to be so many ways to not be able to, to be correct in the end and receive credit. I, I, you have to get all of both of those right to get credit rather than one of them or, look, I mean, in my view, the real problem is, I mean, most problems that I solve in real life aren't, don't have a right or wrong answer. And, I mean, it isn't, and, and what's gone wrong here is there's often a right or wrong answer for a particular calculation set up in a particular way. But not, you know, and, and again, the, the process you use to get that, I mean, the processes that you use to calculate things are, there are better processes and worse processes. And they're better or worse because they have different things that go wrong. And sometimes, you know, they're quicker or they're slower or whatever. And so this binary look, at whether things are right or wrong, or processes, you know, the right process, the wrong process, is completely delusional, in my view, in general. And I mean, one of the problems, you know, when we set up modules for computer-based maths, uh, we often start with rather fuzzy questions. You know, should I insure my laptop computer? That's a rather hard one. I think. <laughs> is it worth insuring something, right? Well, I mean, it's not to do with I mean, you know, it, it's complicated. What, what's the right and wrong answer for that in a sense? So I think we've got to zoom out from mathematics being this sort of binary 
uh, binary view of, world, of the world. And I mean, it, you know, and it comes up with, of course, with assessments all the time, with multiple choice questions. I often joke with people, you know, in life, there aren't that many times when I've had, you know, five answers to a question, <laughs> one of which I know is right and the other of which I know are wrong. It just doesn't come up. I wish, I wish running a business was like that, but unfortunately it doesn't come up that um, And it's, um, it, it's, I think it's, it's, it's also switches people off a lot because I think a lot of richness that, that a lot of kids would be connected with is actually the complexity of the situation. It's thinking about all the weird nuances and the things that, you know, go wrong and the funny cases and the edge cases and, and, and we lose all of that if the problems are too simple and too black and white. So, so building on that, can you, you flesh out a little bit the am I normal or, you know, that's a good fuzzy, fuzzy question. At, at, you know, at, I, if I believe it was about year nine, right, kids, kids hate themselves. They, you know, they don't like their family very much. They're worried about their friends. So, so that has a real nice egocentric quality to it. But, but what would that activity look like? How long does it take? What, what role does the computer play, et cetera? So, and I, you know, forget every detail of this one, but roughly speaking, that would be probably um, something like, you know, it could be five to 10 hours, depending on the detail. And it would be something, you know, to start with, it's like, well, you know, we're assessing, you know, so if you're, if you're really normal, yeah, like like if you've got one, if you're really weird in one way, right? Uh, how does that and and very normal in every other way? How does that compare to somebody who's like slightly slightly strange in two ways? And how would you compare that? You know those sorts of things. And then what we do is is that we're collecting, um, you know, getting some big data sets, and it could be of lots of different things. It could be of foot size, or it could be of you know anything. And we're we're looking at those data, but instead of collecting, you know you know, five points and putting them on a graph by hand. You know, you can collect 100,000 you know, points from, you know, national databases of things and so forth. And then you can see how you would do some basic data analytics with that, with that sort of size of, of, of data set. And, of course, the analytics you do then are extremely different from what you would do in a traditional class with, with 10 points. Um, and so then you can write little programs to, to assess different things. You can, you know, you can look at it in different ways. Um, so that, that's, that's an idea with that. I mean, just to give you an example of uh, another one that, that um, comes, comes to mind, you know, we have another module called Can I Spot a Cheat? And I remember one activity in that module particularly, which I, I sometimes show, which is um, we get divide a class in two, and we get half the class to toss a, toss a coin you know, actually toss it and note down which heads or tails in the computer. And the other half we get to cheat by just typing heads and tails, you know, H and T or something into their computer. And then you, you put it up and you, the question is, can the teacher tell from the data who's cheated and who hasn't? And the answer typically is yes. And the students tend to be amazed by this. It's like, I don't understand how you can tell, right? And, of course, there's a great early discussion into patterns of data. You know, and the fact, you know, credit card fraud detection, you might look for patterns. And then the students come up with lots of ideas as to why, you know, how, how you might have looked at this, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's a, that's a sort of very different way in which we might approach something from how you would. And, of course, you can't do any of that with, without a computer because, you know, you couldn't do it by hand, too many data points. So those, those well, are a couple of examples. 
there's that you know there's a lot of discussions about equity and or bias and algorithms and 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 just a real you know really simple question is you know a lot of a lot of computer games you play asks you what's your name and apparently some of them say that's not a real name right so you know right what's a real name well, and, and I mean, if you were in France, right, if I've got this right, it had to be a saint's name, otherwise it wasn't legal. So I guess these things change over time. So that, was, um, uh, that would never have worked in the UK, that's for sure. Bob, Bob Kahn has a question. We'll take a couple more if you've got a couple more minutes. Bob, sure. do you want to ask yeah, your question? No yes, thank you. Thank you very much for spending time with us today. Um, nice, to, nice to get this discussion. So my question is kind of related to what uh, Gary was just asking in that, I think one of the things that is so scary for teachers to embrace this is that it seems so abstract. And so I really appreciate the concrete example that you just gave with the am I normal and the cheating. Um, does your, are, are there more modules? Are there more examples in your book where maybe you take teachers through or the reader through those four steps you mentioned at the beginning of your presentation today? Yeah, so yes, there is a section in my book where at least I work through one particular example through the four steps. Um, it's actually an example about trying to find, um, uh, you know, I think it's trying to find cancer cells inside an image of cells and how you would define abstraction so for that. And, and I also try and talk through some other examples of, of that too. And I think we've also got um, online, we've put these four modules recently, as I mentioned earlier, at Wolf and You. And so those are actual modules you can, you can try and play with and look at. Um, it's, it's a little bit, it's at the edge of technology right now because we've got our Wolf from Notebooks fully in the cloud doing all the fancy things they're trying to do. And um, so I don't promise it's 100% yet, but that might give you more ideas for the sorts of, of, of ways we're doing it. I totally agree with you. I mean, it's really tricky for teachers because we're asking teachers effectively, why don't you teach a new subject that you, don't, you didn't learn um, with, so to speak, not new technology, but technology used in a new way uh, with a kind of new way round to think about it and hey, can can you you know can you do this all at the same time? So that's why we built these modules because we thought that I mean, it was quite interesting because when we first started doing this, I, I was hoping we could just you know lay out what you'd normally have in a class, like a, you know class notes and things or whatever they're called in the US, and that, that would sort of help. But then I realised in order to do that as a teacher, you need context, the background of what you're used to teaching in that subject. And since this is a new subject, that really went. So we ended up building sort of more and more until we really set up these modules, which, which seem very, and I don't want them to seem prescriptive. They can seem a bit prescriptive because we ended up writing out what would you do in every minute of every, of every lesson, right, which seems like horrific. But actually, hopefully it's helpful. Because obviously you don't have to stick to that, but it, it, it means that we have at least tried to think through what one would do if one was literally following it as it is. And, and just to be clear, the modules, by the way, we've put up online. Um, we've, we've got two sets of these. We've, we've got offline modules that run with the sort of Wolfram player, which, which have a teacher and a student edition. We haven't yet managed to replicate that online. So the online ones are like more, more like MOOCs with a video equivalent to the teacher. 
but hopefully that gives some idea. And, and that's also, so the idea of the teacher-student versions was that the teacher versions had directions, like, you know, things to know about this bit of it, and the student version didn't. Um, but we haven't quite managed to get that to an online phase yet. But I hope the online ones are close enough to give an idea of where we were trying to go with that. Well, you can also... I, I should add, actually, to that, one of the tricky things, which, again, particularly governments, it's so frustrating this, that they think is easy. But just coming up with the examples that are hard enough to be engaging, but are easy enough to, where you can kind of get somewhere. That are possible, right? Yeah, that are possible is actually very, very tricky. Um, I mean, as, as a lot of these experts spouting about COVID might want to reflect on, as in, you know, it's kind of like, you know, and some of them have been very good, but some of them say, you know, I can predict to you exactly what's going to happen. I'm thinking in my head, but you know what? Actually, there are too many, you know, complete unknowns. It's like the, the error bars are massive. So I don't really think you know that this prediction is anywhere close. But, you know, you just can't predict. You should be honest. There are certain things you just can't predict. Well, we could also be using, comp uh, you know, computation to do interesting calculation. I know uh, a teacher who used to ask, you know, 12-year-olds, if you didn't go to Starbucks every day, how much earlier could you retire? Yes, it's, it's, and that's right. And it's things where it's, it's actual, real, interesting life problems to engage in. And, and actually, one of the things I, I bring out in the book, which I think is, is interesting, I feel like we, I discovered in writing the book that there's this term in Britain we use to fall between two stools, which I don't think is the same in the US. It's like you have two, the stools you sit on, uh, I should add. And the idea, and it's, it's a very old English expression, I think, where, you know, you, you, you don't quite decide which one you're sitting on, so you end up falling between them and sitting on the floor. And so the current maths curriculum, it's kind of like, I mean, if we talked, to, you know, talked about Euler's theorems, it might engage, I mean, I'm not suggesting this is the right thing to do, but I'm saying that might be engaging. These big concepts of mathematics are kind of interesting to some people. Or if we did something that's purely practical and engaged with, you know, something immediate in people's lives. But what we're sort of doing is somewhere in between that, where the thing is neither big and conceptual, which I think might be of interest to some, nor is it actually practical and of relevance to the, to the person's life. And so it's kind of like this neverland in between quite a lot of the time, which is pretty off-putting. We want to take one or two more questions from the, the crowd. Anyone have a question for Conrad? Yeah, I have a comment on what Kimberly was saying earlier. When I was learning algebra in eighth grade or something, I just, it made no sense to me. A plus five equals 10, find what A, the value of A is like, you know, get me out of there, please. And one day from overnight, literally, suddenly it became crystal clear. And the only thing I could remember is like, yesterday I was totally confused with this stuff. Today it makes sense. And I was trying to figure out what happened. Why, you know, what could I get yesterday and what do I understand? There was no clue. I did the day before you asked me what's confusing you. I would not have been able to formulate what's confusing me. So even if the teacher wanted to help me understand, it's like, you know, where do they start? It's That's very tricky, point. this. And I mean, one thing I, I've noticed is my own daughter, Sophia, right? So as I described in the book, there was a run-in with our maths department at school. The, the department I least wanted to have a run-in with, right? <laughs> I was trying desperately to avoid this. Um, 
but but it was really frightening because she does pretty well at most of these subjects. She does fine, and so it was this one thing, and she got really unhappy about it. And it was a diagnostic problem. And I can see the. I mean, there wasn't the particular teacher in question was not a good teacher, and they didn't understand what the problem was, and then they were confused between process of adding fractions, I think it was, and you know, actually conceptually understanding something. And so they thought extension things were, were you know, the, the everyday maths, and they were all confused about and, and what happened in the end was, um, I mean, there was this, I, because, you know, I've not actually, but people often think I might push in a lot to what Sophia does and things in, in maths, and I really don't. I mean, it's not, you know, super, she's really interested in biology, she's not super interested in maths, and that's fine. And, um, but she needs it in order to do the science she wants to do. So it matters to the extent that she passes the exams and isn't prevented from doing the things she wants to do. So, so I engaged a bit with this. And in the end, you know, there were some point issues that she just hadn't understood along the way. You know, she'd missed the lesson on whatever it was, adding fractions. So she just didn't happen to know the procedure for adding fractions. On the other hand, she was helping all the best best children at her school in how to do geometry because she happened to find that very easy but the diagnostic in the maths department didn't stretch to really understanding this and so it kept kind and then the other problem she had she was put in slightly too low a set and this actually made stuff harder for her in the following sense because she like me fails you know she had three pages of notes on percentage increases and I remember sitting one evening trying to understand these notes with another graduate from Cambridge Maths, uh, who was a friend who was visiting, and we were both rather stymied by the three pages of notes on percentage increase, we were rather confused. And I realized that, you know, for some students who really aren't seeing it, that actually just being led through it at least lets them to be able to do percentage increases. But for Sophia, it's actually completely disastrous. She just gets confused, and then she can't understand why she can't do it. And actually, the two rules that she needs to understand is what really helped her. And then it was actually much easier. And so I think different people learn in these very different ways. And it's very hard for a teacher, particularly in mathematics, to see those differences. And I think that, or to have the time to really diagnose it, it's just very tricky. And, it, you know, I was also... You know, in, in the case of Sabira, I kind of know her quite well. I know my characteristics, and so I could, and I know the subject fairly well. So I could kind of add all those things together to figure out the diagnosis. Um, so I, I suppose it's interesting um, to reflect on where it was that one suddenly got those jumps. But well, yeah, well, the imposed assessment makes you lazy because you don't have to think about the thinking of each child. You don't have to get to know kids. Because that's done for you, and you get a result. Yeah, right. Um, so, uh, any I've got someone who wants to ask a question, but I'm going to throw it up to the crowd to see if we we have any more, and then we'll let let um, James class and ask the last one. One more question, penultimate question for Conrad. I wish it was. Hi. Um, Hi. Okay. Uh, I've got uh, two connected questions. Uh, one is when. I speak to people about um, how much computational time they, they spend with their math students and how it's basically boring their brains off of them. Um, and I show them Wolfram Alpha or other apps on their phones, say, well, if you can get the answers really quickly, why do you make them do 60 questions or 30 questions? And they say, well, kids need to 
the basics. Kids need to know how to compute facts. They need to do this so they can do fractions and, and all those lovely uh, skills. And I always ask the question, but why? If there's AI that does that, why don't we teach them how to understand how to use those skills? But I can't seem to get through to them that they don't have to drill and kill until the kids just hates math so much. The one side. And the flip side is uh, related to fractions. I had a conference with somebody who was learning Minecraft. And her big question is, how do I use Minecraft to teach kids how to simplify fractions? <laughs> I asked her why. She said, well, everybody needs to know how to simplify fractions. Common denominators. I'm going and I ask again, why? So we'll use it all the time. I said, so tell me when you use that as an adult on a regular basis. And Great question. I said, well, yeah, when you cook, you have... You convert one half to two quarters periodically if you get a double recipe. But in real life, you convert it to a decimal and use it right away. Um, why do you spend hours and hours ruining a game like Minecraft to learn how to do it? So it's a lot of legacy stuff. So basically, what do we do to convince teachers that the, the meat and potatoes is not the basics, Yeah, is the thinking? So, so look, I've written incredibly extensively about this in the book to try and at least lay out, uh, you know, really for several reasons. I obviously hope we'll get some of the teachers who are involved to read it and understand these issues and see that really the basics they thought were the basics are the wrong basics. And, and there are basics we need, like really understanding this four-step process and how to apply it. But, and, and I, in fact, the, the why questioning, I do quite extensively. I have a, a section where I'm, I'm pushing this why question. It's about long division, but it could have been about fractions. You know, why do you care? Why do you care? Why do you care? Saying we need to have confidence in everyone to ask these why questions repeatedly. Um, the, by the way, my first objection, I forget which, I think it's chapter 10, uh, is, is exactly about which basics and the argument about the basics, you know, the, the right basics versus the wrong basics. Um, I mean, the fraction adding thing is really bizarre, right? Because as you say, um, I mean, the number of times I've had to multiply a third by a seventh in my life is very limited. Um, I sometimes multiply a decimal by, you know, I say, well, I've measured a length and I want a third of that length. But, but again, one of the things I, I try and separate a lot, I think, is there's which step of these four steps are we really talking about? So, for example, you take fractions, there's the setup step. And then there's, you know, which is, uh, I mean, first there's what we're trying to calculate, the fine step. And then there's the abstraction or setup step. And then there's the actual computation. Now, the reality is in the modern world that, you know, if you've managed to set the problem up right, you really can always compute it on a computer. So you really don't have to worry about that. The difficulty is in setting it up. And so, you know, knowing when you'd actually set up a quarter multiplied by a third might be important, but really the rest of it isn't. And I think we've just got to go on explaining to people that, that, that theory. And I, I go along in the book as to why, you know, it's understandable. I mean, there's people, everybody in the population who's educated in any way at this point has been, you know, since they were age three, told that maths was important, this is the subject it is. They've been drilled and drilled and drilled, not only in the subject, but in how it's a critical part of being human or being an educated human anyway. And that kind of, if you don't do this, you're, you know, so it's, it's very unsurprising that societal people find it very difficult to steer away from it. And I think the only thing one can do is just calmly go on making the argument and go on giving the alternative and try to do that over time, you know, and, and I think 
over time, those things win if one has a good, you know, campaign as well as good answers, as well as a good structure for how to make those changes. But it's long and hard. So I, I don't have a great answer for you, but that's sort of the way I think about it. I totally agree with the issues. Well, Sylvia reminded me of a great quote from our friend Alfie Cohn, who said that you can't practice your way to understanding. Yes. And, and I, I agree. You can't drill your way to conceptual thinking, in my view. Even though, um, I mean, I know Artemis's example, that I suspect what was happening there was, was it, wasn't, it, it wasn't the drilling it was doing, it was that somehow there was a connection made at some point, almost possibly by accident, that caused the understanding. And maybe, you know, there might have been a better way to get there, perhaps. Well, and, and there's this problem with, the, with English, because the word practice, as it's used in a math class, is fundamentally different from becoming an athlete or playing the cello or, or, or doing all sorts of other things. That, so, that so I, often a... use, I often use experience. I don't really like the of term course. practice. Because to me, it's, it's accelerated experience. You know, and, and by the way, you know, I, I always think, I, I, always, I think I compare this in the book, the flight simulators. You know, I do think flight is an example of, of accelerated experience that, that on the whole helped a great deal in flying airplanes. Right. And, you know, all, all of my work, I always say, is grounded in a Piagetian idea that knowledge is a consequence of experience. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and even the, the practice of show, show all work or show your work is, is an assault on a kid's integrity. It's 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 not a way it's not a way to understand their thinking as much as it is to, to get a different right answer, which is to show the trick the teacher wants you to be able to demonstrate. So we're gonna, we're gonna throw to one more one more person before we let you go. My friend David Cavallo is in Brazil and he's got a question. So we'll let David ask the last question. There, David? Yeah, sorry, I had to unmute. Thunderstorm here, so you muted me. Uh, well, thanks, as always. This is wonderful. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Conrad. And thanks for all the work. So, question is going back to the idea about change. You answered a little bit there. And it's like Seymour used to give an example or an image of like educational systems being highly distributed with all the nodes kind of in a dynamic equilibrium and changing one over time, the others normalize it and it brings it back. And so you bring content, you got assessment. Almost the harder one is, is like, you know, you have the what of what you're doing, the content, you have the how in terms of methodology of the tools, but it's like also with whom you're doing it. And we have a vicious circle of not many people had the opportunity to deeply learn the mathematics or the computation. And especially to think about it, not just in school math, but about apply to things that you would, kids would be interested in, you get in the real world. So, Given all of this and how hard it seems to be, and even when you give great evidence of results, it's insufficient to either open more opportunities or to convince people. What's the thinking about change that isn't, you do something great, it works great, but over time it just gets normal. I mean, the, uh, uh, we took, you know, the way the term I use is this ecosystem of education is broken around the world. And there are comparisons. I mean, one comparison I draw is about starting a company in the 1970s. In most countries, it was very, very difficult. Like, I mean, you know, you could only do it because you couldn't get finance because the finance was tied to whether you already had money. And so, and there was all sorts of ludicrous regulations in most countries that 
was trying to prevent risk that didn't really, because the risk was actually that people weren't starting new businesses, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was interesting. I mean, led by the US, I think, in that case, um, it was a sort of mixture of changed regulations, changed viewpoints, changed attitudes about failure and success that allowed there to be a change in kind of the, the startup mentality. And, you know, now countries all around the world, I mean, even countries you'd consider pretty socialist or, or anti-business, you know, <laughs> you know, are falling all over themselves to say, hey, we're the place to do a startup. Right, because our regulations are easy. You can start a company quicker here, and you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that has very much changed in the last, you know, 40, 50 years. And I feel like the big picture here is we need a similar change in the ecosystem of education, to a, particularly to allow subject change. And that, as you say, if you don't do that, everything pulls back to the kind of the, the previous normal, in some sense. Now, you know, it's also very unpredictable. I mean, you know, just like. I think we're going to find this COVID pandemic uh, has changed some things, both inside education and outside, that were, you know, things that were waiting to be changed, and somehow it's kicked them into action. I mean, you know, the one I, I you know, the, the idea of going for a business trip for a two-hour meeting, you know, to the other end of the world, when you could have been on Zoom, seems kind of nuts. And, you know, that sort of thing we all knew was sort of crazy before, but but it kind of like this has kicked that into a change. So I, I think that we need to try and, I mean, and let me put it another way. In the end, the problem here is risk mitigation at different levels. So one of the problems at the moment is that the politicians, what they perceive as their risk is not aligned with the actual risk on the ground of students not learning, you know, conceptual computational thinking. The risk to students of not learning that from society, both individually and societally going forwards is quite high. I mean, you know, as in it, it, it's a bit like, you know, I mean, there are lots of things that will go wrong in society if that doesn't happen. But unfortunately, the risk, if you're a politician setting a curriculum, is that basically people are mostly going to complain about anything you change. And so that means that you're minded basically to to keep your head down and not change very much if you can possibly help it most of the time, except for a few who really want to change things for, their, for whatever reason. So I don't have a complete answer, but I think it's this system change that we need to look at. And, and you know, those changes do happen, but we've got to actively look at how to make that system change, not just perturb one node at a time. Uh, and I think, you know, we can make perturbations in different places. And each country, by the way, and each jurisdiction has a slightly different way in which these perturbations happen. And so one has to also sort of localize one's attack, I think, um, appropriately. But, you know, that's kind of the best way I've seen it so far. And, and I think collectively it's possible, but, but not if we're all focused in, in different ways to make the change. Well, you know, as you, as you share in the paper laptop story, um, we, we have this notion of, of hierarchy and fixed, fixed sequences. And, you know, there are all, one of my favorite comments about math education, about mathematics, actually came from the NCTM in 1989. You know, the NCTM is hardly a radical organization, uh, quite the contrary. But in 1989, they, they said that 50% of mathematics has been invented since World War II. 
And it's a, it's a result of computation and, and the society's need for number. And fractal geometry, number theory, chaos, topography, you know, um, cellular automata are really lovely forms of mathematics that kids could be engaging with because of computers that were impossible otherwise that don't require them to be the dessert that you get after, you know, 16 years of formal, formal right. drudgery. Yeah, I mean, it's all backwards. The it, it's led by a, a notion of abstraction, which actually is mostly pure procedure. And when you're very lucky, you might engage that for something you might actually be interested in. And of course, some people are directly interested in the abstract concepts, and that's wonderful. And some people, many people are not initially. And we've got to kind of completely turn that on its head and then make sure. I mean, and just to add on, on the previous question as well, you know, when you look at things like assessments, which are kind of the linchpin for what drives subjects, as we've all been discussing, um, I think I've taken totally the opposite view of assessment that I have with the subject, which is that within the current structures of assessment, there are actually ways, if you change the content, that we could at least perturb the subject quite significantly. So as in, even if you wanted to keep your current structures, which I don't like, but without kind of upsetting the whole apple cart, one could make really quite significant changes uh, and force changes back to the subject that would make it much more sensible. Um, I mean, even without computers, although that's pretty ludicrous, right? But certainly with computers, you could make very significant changes. So, so I think that's a way of looking about sort of a mixture of an inc apparently incremental change making a, uh, a, a very precipitous change. What would be one example of that? Well, not having very closed-ended questions, having exams where, maths exams, where you can ask, you know, so for example, you know, you might say, here are two data sets from, I mean, or here, you know, here, here are two renditions of a website. Here's the data sets from two renditions of a website. You know, which one is performing best, right? Discuss which one is performing best. And it would be a matter of, you know, I mean, it depends what you were presented or not, but, you know, you could be discussing those in a perfectly sensible way. Now, of course, if what you think is you want an answer that's right or wrong, you know, multiple choice, you're out of luck with that. But we have many structures for marking exams that, I mean, as, as Cambridge Assessment were telling me years ago, you know, I think that their ability to mark exams quantitatively for, for apparently qualitative subjects like English go back, I don't know, 100 plus years. So, I mean, this is a known thing at some level. And we can, we can, you know, it costs a little bit more money, but it can be done. It's not unknown. So I, I feel like there are those sorts of, you know, another example would be if you have a computer, here's a very complicated model with lots of sliders and other things. Here's a big complicated model. Um, you know, here are a bunch of questions about the model. What, you know, when is this model going to go wrong? You know, what, what do you think is, um, you know, what, where, where, where do you think pulling the sliders causes it some sort of problem? You know, where don't you believe it's out? I mean, there are all sorts of things that are completely different to what we see in current maths, but, but actually would already be much closer to what I'm talking about. Well, I don't know if this is cause for optimism or pessimism, but, you know, the U.S. doesn't have a national curriculum and doesn't have nearly as much external assessment of the sort of subject kind that they, um, that, that you're dealing with in the UK, and yet the practice in the classrooms on the ground is just as preposterous. Which, so the, the, 
it's kind of interesting when you're thinking about well, variable I actually, sets. I, I do discuss a little bit in the book in the sense that I think the trouble is you've got to there's been this idea of leaving leaving more to local jurisdiction. But but if you do that, it's very complicated to work this stuff out, as we found. And so if you use if you just leave people who haven't really thought about this as much as for example we have, they end up sort of going back to what they knew because it's safe. Uh, and so actually the idea of giving more freedom in somebody's curriculum doesn't necessarily result in more innovation, even though you'd hope that it would. And I well, think that's some of what's happened in some cases. Right. To come back to your classics example, it's it's mythopoetic. You know, the, uh, fun, when you when you leave it to, to, to chance like that, fundamentally people revert to what they think it is. And, you know, so that so it's deeply mythological and ideological. And, there, you know, logic and, and facts and new technology is, a, is no match for that ideology. Yes, that's right. Well, I want to thank you for spending 90 minutes with us. It's really good to see you again. We need to follow up offline. Uh, will everyone join me in thanking Conrad for sharing his time and wisdom with us? Thank you very much. And it was a great conversation. I enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed this Constructing Modern Knowledge podcast. Our theme music is Jazz Impromptu by Brian Lynch, HolisticMusicWorks.com. For podcasts and additional inspiration, check out our website, Live.ConstructingModernKnowledge.com. Be sure to visit CMKPress.com, that's CMKPress.com, for books by creative educators, for creative educators.